Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this evening uh, to the book of Psalms, and we're turning to Psalm 125. In our evenings together, uh, we have been going through a collection of psalms that are known as the Psalms of Ascents. And uh, this is a collection of psalms from Psalm 120 uh, to Psalm 134. And so this evening, uh, we are coming to 125. If you're using the church Bibles, you'll find this on page 517. Psalm 125. A song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Well, as mentioned, we have been doing this series uh, through the Songs of Ascents, and we've been highlighting that they were collected uh, most likely because of the heading. Uh, It signifies that they were used as the people ascended Mount Zion uh, for their pilgrimages uh, multiple times each year. That The men of Israel were to gather in Jerusalem uh, to worship the Lord. And as they uh, did so, it seems at some point they incorporated these psalms in their their pilgrimage or in their journey. But we've been highlighting how these psalms have also a certain appropriateness for the journey through this life. That all of us, as we are making our way through this life, need to be able to reflect on and to meditate on God's truth. And there are certain things that uh, come to prominence already as we've been looking at these psalms. We've been thinking about God as our protector. We've been thinking about the people of God. We've been thinking about the pursuit after peace. Uh, All of these themes have been emerging. Well, this evening, we want to think uh, about this theme of trusting in God. And when you think about what does it mean to live a life of faith? What does it mean to be a believer? What does it look like? How would you describe it to someone? How do you think about it yourself? How does scripture describe what it means uh, to be uh, a person of faith? The Bible uses different language to describe what it means to be one who lives following God. Uh, You can think, for instance, of the language of knowing God. Uh, And that language of knowing isn't simply a mental or an intellectual thing. It's rather uh, the idea of an intimacy of knowledge. That just like when someone asks you, do you know so-and-so? And you might respond by saying, I know of them, but I don't really know them. You're you're suggesting, you're expressing in your answer that there's a sense of disconnect. You're, You're not that close to them. You may know certain things about them, 
but you can't say that you're so close that you feel like you know them. And so the Bible uses this language of knowing God to capture that, that closeness of intimacy, of relating to God in a close way. But the Bible also describes not just knowing God, but it also talks about fearing God. And that idea of fearing God can be, take on different connotations. But even the people of faith are called to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in that, it's meaning not a sense of dread, not in a sense of trying to escape from God, of being terrorized by God, but rather it's this idea of reverence for God. That everything that one does in this life, God is pulled into the picture. That his will is so important that, that you bring everything back to God. That there's a prioritization as to, is this in keeping with God's will? That's what it means to fear God. You, you have a reverence for his will being realized. And so the people of faith are characterized by a sense of pursuing God. They want to know God. They know that God knows them. And in Christ, they come to have this closeness with God. But it also means that they have a high respect for God. They esteem his will and they want his will to be done. Well, this evening we are coming to look at another key word and it's the word trust. Trusting God. A believer is someone who lives trusting in God and that they live their life shaped by that confidence in God. To trust really means to be persuaded about something or someone to such an extent that you act on that confidence that you have in them. You, you have such confidence in them. You're persuaded enough that you can now live in light of that knowledge about them. You're confident about that thing is uh, able and reliable for the way you live your life. Oftentimes people describe the life of faith even with the illustration of a chair. You come in and you see a chair. Uh, you have a certain understanding of the chair. Someone might tell you that chair is going to be able to hold you up. But it's only when you sit in the chair that you're trusting in it, that you're depending on it. Your confidence is now leading you to act on the basis of what you know about that chair. It is stable. It is able to hold me up. And this evening we want to be thinking about trusting God and uh, how that shapes the way of life. We want to see that because God is trustworthy, that we are to trust in him. And we want to think about this short psalm in just those two, uh, in two thoughts uh, surrounding the idea of trust. We want to think about picturing trust, and then we want to think about the practice of trusting in God. Well, first, uh, there is the picture of trust. The psalm begins there in verse 1 by saying, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Mount Zion is simply another way of speaking of Jerusalem. Uh, it is speaking about uh, the place where the people of God would come together, the place where the temple was located in the Old Covenant. It was the place where God met with his people. 
But here, uh, this psalm uh, highlights that Mount Zion, uh, uh, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. The old city of Jerusalem was located uh, atop a limestone plateau uh, in the Judean mountains. But just as a mountain is fixed in its location, it's not going to be moved. So here the psalmist is picturing what it looks like to be one who trusts in the Lord, what it means to believe in the Lord. And he pictures it like a mountain. A mountain is a symbol of that which is immovable. Remember how Jesus himself said that even if you had a small faith, even if you had the, uh, a small faith, then you could move mountains. Uh, he wasn't talking about literal mountains. He was talking about that which seems immovable, that which seems so secure. And in this context, that imagery, that symbol of that which is immovable is being described or attributed to the people of God, to believers, that they are characterized as those who are immovable, unshaken, secure. The life of faith is one that is based on the security that they have, that they can live stable on the rock of the Lord Jesus, that they live with the confidence of God himself. And that really flushes out the picture here because he says uh, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. And then in verse 2, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. If you were to physically go to Jerusalem and you looked out towards the east, you would have the Mount of Olives. And that mountain range, that the Mount of Olives, it would surround or it would extend the outlying ridges of that mount would surround to the northeast and the southwest. And so you could look at from Jerusalem. If you were a pilgrim, you could look out and you were actually being given an object lesson. As you saw the mountain, uh, uh, the Mount of Olives, as you saw the ridges of that mountain extending out, you were seeing a picture that God surrounds us just like these mountains, that we're secure because we have God protecting us. And so the life of faith is one that is lived with the confidence of God's favor, of God's presence, and of God's protection. That's how the people of God have lived their lives. And this expression here is something that is rooted in the Old Testament revelation. You think back to when Israel came up out of the land of Egypt, it tells us that when they came to the crossing of the Red Sea, that there was a pillar of fire that went before them, that the pillar of fire was leading them, but that when the Egyptians came upon them, the pillar moved and turned and went to behind them to protect them. And that pillar of fire became a wall of fire, separating and protecting them and defending them from their enemies. The people knew that they were protected because God was with them. Or you turn elsewhere, you turn to the days of Elisha. There was a time in Elisha's own ministry when the king of Syria was plotting attacks on Israel. But every time he went to make his attack, we're told that the people of Israel had actually adjusted their own locations so that his plans were being thwarted. 
And he began to be suspicious that there was someone leaking his plans to the enemy. That he thought he had a traitor in his midst. Until finally someone said, it's not a traitor. There's a prophet in Israel. That there's this man, Elisha, who is disclosing this information. And so we're told that the Syrian army came upon Elisha. And when one of Elisha's servants saw the army coming upon them, he was afraid. And he said, what should we do? And Elisha said, there are more on our side than there are on theirs. And Elisha prayed to the Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And it tells us that when uh, he prayed these words, that the man looked around and he saw the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The Lord surrounded his people and he protects them. Or you think even later in Israel's history, after the time of their nation being destroyed, there was a prophet by the name of Zechariah. And in Zechariah's own time, he uttered the word of the Lord. And he said, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without city walls. Because the multitude of people and livestock in it. Their nation has just been destroyed a hundred years before. And now a prophet says, Jerusalem is going to be so big. We won't have the ability to have city walls. That the people wouldn't fit in it with walls. And so it won't have any walls. Now you think of a city that doesn't have any walls. That city is defenseless. It's vulnerable on every side. It, it is liable to being destroyed by the enemy any time. But Zechariah goes on to say, after announcing that this city will have no walls, uh, he goes on to say, the Lord announces, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it. So you have this theme again and again in scripture, that the people who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, because they're immovable, because God surrounds them to protect them. That they are a people who are secure because of God. Now here's the thing. Every one of us longs for security in this life. Every one of us wants to live with a sense of ease that things are going to be okay. But there's only a couple of different avenues that we can really go to to find that or to look for that. You can look to yourself and think that you have enough control that you can ensure that everything will be okay, that you will be secure because you have enough control of your situation. Another way is to think about your context. Bad things won't happen to me because my context won't turn bad. I'm safe because my situation is safe. The problem, though, is, is that our situation can easily change. And by turning inward on ourselves, we are faced with this dynamic that we don't actually control all things. If we live that we're going to be secure because we are in control, we're going to be ultimately futile in our attempts. Because there are things that we don't control. There are things that we have done that we can't undo. And because there is a future that is unknown to us. And so there is actually so much to life that is outside of our control. 
you, you can narrow your focus and just say, well, I'm only going to focus on the things that I can control and I just won't be concerned about the things I can't. The problem with that is, is that it doesn't help you address the totality of life. It actually doesn't help you deal with your past choices. You don't have the confidence to face your own errors, your own guilt. It doesn't allow you to face the, pre- the challenges of the present necessarily. And it definitely doesn't give you confidence about the future. What do I do with my own guilt? What do I do when I can't fix things myself? And how do I live knowing that things actually will turn out? You see, putting our trust in ourselves is short-sighted at best. It does not lead to security. But what this psalm is celebrating is is that those who trust in the Lord are secure. That those who look to God in faith, they are immovable. Not because of something in themselves, but because of what they have discovered about God. That God is a God who is with his people. That he is a God who surrounds his people in his power and in his favor, in his grace. So that they are safe in the state in which they are in. And that theme of God surrounding his people ultimately prepares them for the coming of the Son of God himself. That Emmanuel, this idea of God with us, reaches a new climax when the Son of God takes on a flesh. When the Lord Jesus comes to live amongst sinners, that he comes to show the favor of God towards those who are guilty before God so that they can find grace in their time of need. And that's ultimately what the New Testament celebrates, that we are exhorted to put our trust in the Lord Jesus. It tells us in Acts, believe in the Lord Jesus or trust in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Or as we read there in Romans chapter 5, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. In which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice how Paul describes the life of the believer. They stand in a state of grace. They stand on a mount that cannot be moved. They stand in a posture, in a position that they cannot lose. God's grace surrounds them in Jesus Christ. That through Jesus Christ they have come to have access before God approved in God's sight. By the Holy Spirit, they have God's love poured into their hearts. They now have been changed, and they're inclined to trust in the Lord. They are persuaded enough about Jesus that they live believing that he is for them. They they know enough about God and his promises that they are able to live in response to those promises themselves. And they live in this state now that is marked by security. In this we stand. And this hope does not put us to shame. 
because God's love has been poured into our hearts. The 18th century Baptist theologian, a man named John Gill, puts it this way. He says, they can never be removed from the Lord, though they may be removed from his house and ordinances, as sometimes David was, and even from his gracious presence and sensible communion with him, and out of the world even by death, yet never from his heart's love nor out of his family into which they have been taken, nor from the Lord Jesus Christ, nor out of his hands, his arms, nor out of his heart, nor from off him as the foundation on which they are laid, nor out of a state of grace, either regeneration or justification, but such abide in the love of God, in the hands of his Son, in the grace wherein they stand, and in the house of God forevermore. They stand in this state of grace. When a person comes to believe in Jesus, they are changed forever. They are not what they once were anymore. And neither can they lose what they have become. The life of faith is one of trusting in God to carry them through. It is is being persuaded enough about their own sins that they look for help. But it's also persuaded enough about God that they're inclined to depend on him for mercy. And in Jesus Christ, they see the solution that they need and they live trusting in him as their own hope. And so this psalm is celebrating that those who trust in the Lord uh, abide forever because the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. It's, a, it's the language of security. And it's not because they have it all together. It's not because they're immune from danger. It's not because they're immune from trouble. It's because of what they know about God. God surrounds us. God is for us. He has promised to be there for all who call on him. And everyone who calls on his name will be saved. And so the people are to live with this mindset as they look around them at the mountain range. We're surrounded by God's grace. We can live secure. It would be like someone flying over Charlottetown or over PEI and saying, just as the waters surround the island, so God surrounds those who love him. That that we live knowing God's favor in Jesus Christ gives a security about the things that we can't control, about the things that we've messed up and what we can't fix. It gives us security even when we have sinned. We have a solution. We have a relief in the Lord Jesus. Is that uh, true of you this evening? Uh, are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Or are you putting your trust in something that ultimately doesn't give you security in the long run? Something that gives us security that will not fail in the end. So there's uh, uh, this picture of trust, a mountain, and a mountain that is surrounded by other mountains. But there's also the practicing of this trust in the second half of this psalm. In verse 3, he says, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands 
to do wrong. The picture of a scepter is a symbol of rule. In other words, uh, the will or the governance of that which is wicked will not remain over that which is allotted to the righteous. In the old covenant, uh, that which was allotted to the righteous, that which was given to the righteous, was the promised land of Canaan. And here it is really saying that the land that was given to the people, to those who were righteous, they will not remain under the hands of those who are wicked. Now, if you know your history, you know that wicked kings did spring up from within Israel, that wickedness did show itself in the land of Canaan. And wicked kingdoms overtook the kingdom of Israel. But what is being emphasized here is is that it will not prevail. There will be a limit because God has set one. That the scepter of wickedness will not triumph in the end. Which is really, it's really stressing for us not to make our judgments simply on the way things are now. Because things won't always be as they are at the present. And so we are to live trusting uh, that uh, the Lord will overcome and that goodness will prevail over wickedness. Uh, We hear so often about being on the wrong side of history. You don't want to find yourself on the wrong side of history. Ultimately, the scriptures teach us that God's goodness will prevail. And if we don't want to be on the wrong side of history, then we better be on God's side. We better be on the side of that which is good in God's sight, rather than living in rebellion to that which is good. But here, the the idea is that the scepter will not prevail. It will not remain uh, in an enduring way over that which is allotted to the righteous. But notice the reasoning. Uh, Lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. There's a confession there of the weakness, even of those who are inclined to the Lord, about their their own weakness that they themselves are prone to give in to the pressures to conform to wickedness themselves. But just like the Apostle Peter, we have to come to the realization that we're not as strong as we might like to think and that we can be pushed in ways that we would otherwise not want to be. And so here is this recognition that even in the presence of wickedness, the people of God should still be marked by a security not because they won't be uh, endangered, not because they won't face harm, but because God sets limits and God will protect his people from falling away. Jesus prayed for Peter, and so Peter was not, uh, did not ultimately abandon his Lord in the end. His confidence, his security is based on the strength of his God, not on his own inner resolve. So this psalmist is able to remain secure even with the rise of wickedness because he knows something about his God. But knowing that the scepter of wickedness is limited will also help us uh, to live in obedience to God, knowing that our obedience is not in vain. So the practice of trusting in God is one that calls for discernment, not simply to go along with whatever is popular, not to simply uh, cater Uh, to the passing opinions around us, but rather to ultimately to be devoted uh, towards God. As our world changes its views on so many views, 
as the Christian moorings or the influence of a worldview of the past begins to fade away. Our society is changing its views on almost everything, on human sexuality, on human nature, on the sanctity of life, on what justice actually means, what truth actually means. All of these things are up in the air. And we have to ask ourselves, where do you go to determine what these things are? Are you ultimately trusting in God's word to make sense of God's world? Or are you putting your trust in the masses? Are you putting your trust in what is pressed upon you? Are you putting your trust ultimately in your own cleverness of escaping any scrutiny? The people of God trust in God, not to escape trouble, but because they have that conviction that it's right, that God is worthy of their trust, and so they cling to him in all things. Those who trust in the Lord then will be marked by aligning themselves with God's ways and desiring God's goodness to be realized. Notice that in verse 4. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. Define for me what goodness is. What is good? The word good in the Bible has covenantal connotations to it. It means for God to do what he has purposed to do. So when the psalmist says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, the psalmist is committing himself to this belief that God's promises, his pledge to show his grace will follow him. God's purpose to bless will be realized. God's will will be done. And that's a good thing. And the heartbeat of any believer is God's ways are good. And so if you're a professing Christian this evening and you sit there and you say to yourself, I'm a Christian, but God's ways, God's design, God's order is not good, then you're a contradiction in terms. If you believe that God's ways are not good, then you can't pray this prayer. You can't pray the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Your will be done. And so if we think that being a Christian is something that we can wax and turn and twist any way we want, then we do not have a reverence for God. We don't know God, and we're not trusting in that God. Here, there is a devotion to God. Oh, Lord, do good. Do your will, because your will is right. And I submit to it. I align my ways to your ways. I trust my ways with your ways. And I rest in your care. That's the language of faith. But that only comes when a person is convinced that God is good. And we only become convinced of that when we see what God has done in Jesus. I can trust in this God. In spite of the many troubles in this world, in spite of the abundance of evil and wickedness, may God's will be done because it's right.
So he says, do good, O Lord, to those who are good, not to those who are perfect, not to those who are without sin, but to those who have integrity, to those who are upright in their hearts. That means those who align themselves, submitting to God's ways and embracing God's will themselves. Those who trust in the Lord then will be marked by that allegiance and that submission. Those who confidently uh, trust in the Lord will also be aware, they will discern uh, the fact that uh, the two ends that we were talking about even in Psalm 37, that those who turn aside from the Lord, those who turn to their crooked ways, those who apostatize, they will be led ultimately to the way of the evildoers. Turning on the Lord ultimately leads one to turning towards the judgment of God. Jesus said the same thing. He spoke about the narrow path and the wide path. He talked about wide is the way that leads to the path of destruction. And many follow it. And here the psalmist is recognizing the same dynamic. That he's trusting in the Lord. Even when other people turn. Are you prepared to trust in the Lord? Even when others turn. Even when others embrace what the Bible says is wicked. Even when others turn ultimately and put their confidence in themselves. Do you have a faith that says God is good and God surrounds his people and God's love has been poured into my heart through the spirit and in Jesus I know where I stand. If we can be anchored on that then we can face all the uncertainties and troubles of this life and we can be like a mountain that's immovable. That's what this psalm is celebrating. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would bless us as we think over uh, these songs uh, of the people of God, that we would recognize the longing of our heart for security but to recognize that that longing will only be satisfied uh, in you. Lord, we pray that we would see in the Lord Jesus the goodness and the grace uh, of our God, and that we would be people who are willing to submit to your ways and to pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Go before us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.